Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. This is episode 22, and we're going to be talking about international trade. International trade is a fairly popular topic, made more popular by Donald Trump and by many of the discussions and, and debates on the subject and about uh, and Biden concerned with things like Russian interference and both of them concerned with China's growing influence in the world. And today we're going to discuss some of those, discuss the policies and the ups and downs of different ways of thinking about it and try and do what we usually do, rethink this issue. And this should be an interesting discussion. You know, last week we talked about immigration and, you know, made a case for open immigration and had a lot of clear arguments that we addressed that that people had made and were able to take another look at some of those arguments. The thing that's interesting about uh, international trade is that while a lot of people have very strong opinions about it, often they don't have very clear-cut arguments about why they feel the way they do, whether whether that's in, in favor of some version of fair trade or some version of free trade. If you ask the average person why they're in favor of either, it's hard for them to present any reason beyond a simple talking point. And that's something that we've seen in the political discussions that have taken place, you know, during this election cycle about trade is that we never actually made it past talking points. So what we'd like to do is to is to dive a little bit deeper and see if we can if we can possibly root some deeper arguments. So the first thing we want to talk about is what's called a trade deficit. And a trade deficit at its core is 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 pretty simple. What a trade deficit is is when you import more than you export. You look at your balance sheet and you see that you're spending more than you're taking in. In this case, imports being, this, these things are measured in cost, not in actual like number of goods, right? That would be a useless measurement. This is uh, the value of the goods coming in versus the value of the goods going out. So the trade deficit is at least right now most often used in reference to uh, our trade with China. You know, the argument has been made that, that China is cheating that they're winning a, this trade war with the United States because of the trade deficit that the U.S. has with China. And the argument is, is that that's negatively hurting the United States, that because of this deficit, because of this trade war, we're losing. And so what we want to look at first is what exactly that means and how we're losing. What is happening here that is so detrimental? Right. What is the trade war? What is this manipulation and dishonesty of China and, and what, what is a deficit really and why is it bad? The trade deficit is when, as a nation, you are spending more than you're taking in through exports and imports. But in reality, what's happening is much more complicated. What's happening is there's a car company who is importing cars from another country You've got a, a toy company importing toys from another country. You've got a, uh, a weapons factory that may be exporting weapons from another country. And on and on and on. You've got all these different companies who are engaged in trade with businesses of other countries. And in, in many cases, 
the individual product that you see is actually made in several different places and made in conjunction with several different companies. And it's not nearly as simple as made in China or made in the United States. It's much more complicated. You know, your average car is made for many, many different components. Those components are not made in one factory. Those no. components are made in 40, 50 different factories. That may be an exaggeration, but just to make it, I mean, it eventually, be. I eventually at some point, if you look at every nut and bolt in that vehicle, the number of factories that were needed is extensive. And so that means you probably had several different countries that came together to make that vehicle. The various metals and the that you use for it, the various uh, things that go into the oil, these are going to be from all over the world and they're going to involve labor and companies all over the world. And of course, this is where it becomes complicated because then the next question you have to ask is how do you calculate this trade deficit? And that, of course, is another issue of, of international commerce that gets debated and decided because some may argue that there's a trade deficit while others may argue that there is not. And that, of course, becomes, becomes nuanced as well because there's kind of two aspects to the trade deficit. The one aspect is a trade deficit in value. And the other aspect is a trade deficit in actual currency because, of course, when you have international trade, something that you don't have in normal trade that occurs between me and you is currency. And currency does change the game a little bit because not only are these companies trading with each other, they're using different currencies in order to make those trades. And that has an effect on the international economy. And something that can happen is that because of certain trade imbalances, where certain countries are exporting or importing more than vice versa, that can affect their, the value of their currency. And the value of their currency can affect how likely they are to export or to import. So these are, these are all the different factors that have a play in this complicated discussion. And... And I'll level with you. Some of these factors are incredibly complicated. We've talked about currency before. We've talked about businesses before and, and how that works. And we have a pretty solid understanding of that. It does not change the fact that we do not have a complete understanding, far from it, of international trade. Because international trade is very complicated. Which is to say that at any given time when you're looking at foreign trade, just as when we were talking about currency, you can't see all the pieces. Even if you had studied it out, the actual predicted outcomes of a lot of things would be beyond the capacity to, beyond at least current human capacity to predict and to, and to foresee. The effects that certain things are going to have on the way people perceive money, which affects its value, it's just going to be unpredictable. But what we can do is we can ask some questions and kind of take a look and take a new perspective on a few of the ideas that do come up in these discussions and in these conversations. And the first thing we want to talk about is, is about what happens when there's a trade deficit. You know, so what happens when the U.S. is importing more than it's exporting in its relationship with China. And so what are what are the results of that? You know, because we have short-term results and we have long-term results. And obviously the short-term result is that we have more stuff and we have less dollars, right? And the argument of course is made, and this is where you get the, the trade war idea, is that because they have more of our dollars, 
China is becoming richer while we're becoming poorer. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh there. That's, that's, but it's funny. It is funny because, because as we've talked about before, if you want to go back and listen to our episode nine inflation episode, we talk about the fact that currency, especially, I mean, especially our currency, there's no real value to this currency. The currency's only purpose is as an exchange of goods and an exchange of services. It doesn't hold any value in and of itself. These dollar bills and more and more of these electronic numbers that you that you pull up on your phone that says how much money you have, those electrons don't hold their value. You know, you can't sell those electrons to someone else <laughs> for something. They're only there as a representation of the wealth that you have. You so, don't you don't buy ones and zeros, Brad, and sell them for fun? No, exactly. So so of course the question then becomes what what are the detriments to to China ending up with more of our dollars and us ending up with more of China's stuff? And, and I, I would really like to hear the answer to that. And of course, the, the first answer that you'd get is that, well, it manipulates our currency. And and of course that's that's true. Because anytime anyone does anything with our currency, it manipulates it. Every <laughs> right. time Mani I spend a dollar. I wouldn't use dollar, the word manipulate. I would use it affects, right? Yeah, exactly. That, that's what it manipulate means. Manipulate supposes effect. you're trying to harm it and, and it's going to have a negative effect. Yes, manipulate is a dirty word that makes it sound truly pernicious. Because if, if I take a dollar and I, I put it on the table and forget about it, then I'm 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 just forgetting about a dollar. But if I bury that dollar, now I'm manipulating the currency. And so the idea is that they're they're manipulating our currency. And what that does is of course it increases the supply or decreases the supply of currency that we have, which then affects, you know, the value of the dollar and can have an inflationary or deflationary effect. In this case it'd be a deflationary effect. Although to understand the argument fully, you have to realize that often when there's a trade war or a trade deficit, those dollars are ending back up in the U.S. system. What happens is, is country A, the United States, trades with country B, China, and imports goods in exchange for dollars. Then company B, China, takes those dollars and spends them in company C on something else. And then company C takes those dollars and spends them back in the United States or to D, E, and F. And then eventually the money ends up back in the United States. Nine times out of ten, that's what happens. If you hadn't noticed, there's not a dollar crisis going on right now <laughs> where we can't find any dollars because China has all of them. We're not in a major deflationary cycle because they've deflated the economy because they've hoarded so many dollars. These things haven't happened, even though the argument is made that right now China is winning this war and is hurting us. Where is that hurt? Because in reality, we have large amounts of stuff that we're getting at a very reasonable price. And so who wouldn't want that, right? Right. The other thing about the way the way you're describing it is people people see it that way. They see they think that America producers make something. They then somehow hand it over to the government, which then goes to China, the Chinese government, and says, "Here's this stuff. How much can we get for it?" 
and China bargains better than we do. And so China <laughs> ends up giving us way more stuff and taking more money, and somehow that's a better deal, right? And then the goods are distributed to the, the various peoples. And that's not what's happening. That's not, at that's all. not even that's not even vaguely what's happening. So when we think about like America trading with China, just to describe it like that is to have the wrong impression of of what's happening. What's happening is an American company is selling some American product to a Chinese person who then is going to take those American dollars and do what? Give them to the Chinese government to sit on? Like what <laughs> like at what point here does a unified Chinese plan that threatens us come into play regarding the dollars that are now held by Chinese people who are buying our imports probably in turn to sell them? This is more like a lot of random people have American dollars and are then going to use them for things. No, it's an ex that is an excellent point, Dan. Thank you for, for making that. It is important to remember that when we talk about international trade, Yes, the fact that there are multiple currencies does change how the money moves around, but it doesn't change the fact that what is happening is companies and individuals are trading with other companies and individuals. It just happens to be across international borders. And so all of the same principles apply that apply in a regular market. There are just a couple of currency changes, but Contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't necessarily mean that the trades are not still between individuals. They're not national trade deals. Right. They're just taxed in different ways than normal exchanges. They go through exactly. different imports and they go through, as you said, a change in currency. Which brings us to another topic that is frequently discussed in terms of trade and deficits, and that's the idea of fair play which is actually where the term, you know, fair trade comes from. And that argument is that you have countries like China and other countries who may impose tariffs or even protectionist tariffs, which are very high tariffs. And tariffs are just it's just another word for taxes. But they impose taxes and those discourage US imports into their country because when you impose a tax on imports into your country for every percentage of that tax you know if you have a five percent tax on steel coming into the united states then that means that steel makers in the united states have a cushion that five percent that they can charge more for their product without there being any competition because everyone who has to import has to pay that extra tax that the U.S. steelmakers don't have to pay. And so the argument is made is that if you have countries who are imposing tariffs on U.S. products, then the only fair thing to do is to turn around and have the U.S. impose tariffs on that country's products entering the United States. If you're going to tax us, then we're going to tax you, right? And that way the trade can be balanced. You know, you have a balance of trade between these two nations so that neither side is winning. And on paper, that sounds really good. You know, we want things to be fair. Everyone wants things to be fair. In reality, what's happening is, is kind of strange that by imposing these tariffs, what, what a country does, especially if they impose protectionist tariffs, which are tariffs that are much higher, you know, talking 20 or 30%, what that does is limits the amount of trade that country is going to have. 
And every time a country does that, it limits their trade and therefore their wealth. And so when a country does that, it hurts that country. And so if China, for example, is doing that, and we in turn say that we're going to do the same thing, we're not punishing China, we're really punishing ourselves. And in order to fully understand that principle, we need to talk a little bit more about protectionism and talk a little bit more about industries. And we're also going to be talking about jobs because all of these things relate in terms of who's winning and who's losing, who's benefiting in all these different situations. Protectionism is simply protecting an industry from outside competition through the use of tariffs. And this operates very similar to the way that most people think of when they think of a monopoly, where you're restricting competition in order to increase prices. Now, it's not exactly a monopoly. It's not a monopoly. It just operates on similar principles. And so it's illustrative to, to reference that. Right. It'll have some of the same adverse effects. Exactly. And so what protectionism does is it has, has multiple effects. You know, the first effect is it limits the the trade that occurs. You know, you impose a, a tax on outside products in your country, and it's going to limit the number of outside products that come in, which is going to increase the cost. For example, if you have a product in the United States that's being sold for $12, and you have a product that could be imported for $10, and you put a $3 tax on that product, that means consumers who could have been getting the product for $10 now have to get it for 12. So there's obviously that cost to the consumer. At the same time, of course, there's the benefit to the company who's producing that product in the United States. And so when people talk about it, that's how they consider the trade-off. You know, there's there's a give and a take. We're gaining this benefit of having our company produce it in exchange for paying that higher price. And they argue that it's better because we're keeping all of those $12. They're all staying within the United States. And that's the most important thing is that we need trade to stay here within the United States. That when we trade with other countries, we're losing the money every time we trade. And that's the idea that that carries so much powers is our argument that we have to keep the money within and when we keep the money within we're keeping the jobs within because if we're spending ten dollars on a chinese made product instead of twelve dollars on a u.s made product then that ten dollars is going to a chinese company and then a chinese worker instead of the $12 going to a U.S. company and a U.S. worker. And if it's going to a U.S. worker, then it's worth that surcharge because it's creating more jobs for the U.S. economy. And that's why fair trade is so important, is to keep those U.S. jobs. That's the argument that's made. And of course, there's a, there's a very simple counter-argument to that. And this argument was if not first made, then most elegantly made by the uh, French political thinker, Frederick Bastier. We like Bastier because he has a way with words and a way of, of conveying uh, 
the nuances and the give and take and the trade-offs in a in a witty way. Um, but he tells the story something like this. So you you imagine that there's a there's a person who owns a business. He's producing iron, and you can get so much iron for fifteen dollars from him, or you can, from a foreign importer, get the same amount for ten dollars. And naturally, everybody goes and they get their money from this foreign country. Now this guy's upset about that. He would rather that they buy from him. In fact, he's so upset that he decides because he's the only one suffering. Makes sense that he'd take action. That he's going to get his guns and he's going to go to the border and he's going to stop them from crossing over to buy the iron and then he realizes you know this is a this is is a bad idea he's one man and there are lots and lots of people going across this border to get iron at a cheaper price and and maybe they're not so sympathetic to his plight because it would cost them more money to buy it from him and and so he decides this is probably not safe who knows maybe they'll defend themselves and this will end poorly for him instead of giving him the money that he wants so instead he fine idea otherwise (laughs) it was such a fine idea right now considering this in our our state of nature terminology that we always discuss obviously if he did that that would be immoral he does not get to decide or to compel people to purchase a product from him when they could get it elsewhere now he can try and persuade them he can try and compete he can try and do all kinds of things but he cannot harm them to get them to buy his product that would obviously be unjust and immoral but he's heard of this great factory his is in paris ours in the united states is in washington dc where they make laws a great manufactory of laws <laughs> that's right laws which moral or immoral one must obey with the threat of violence and whereas one man couldn't stop everybody from crossing the border to get a cheaper good the army at the disposal of this great factory of laws certainly can. And so he goes there and through a series of deals, he gets them to start preventing people from going over. Now, maybe they prevent them by actually stopping trade with this country with this product, or maybe they do it by simply applying a tariff that increases the cost to the point where his $15 charge is more reasonable and he gets a portion or maybe even all of the business in the example that bastier gives it's belgian iron versus french iron that's being discussed and this is the argument that the man presents to the legislators belgian iron is sold in france at 10 francs which obliges me to sell mine at the same price i should like to sell at 15 but but cannot do so on account of this belgian iron which i wish was at the bottom of the red sea I beg you will make a law that no more Belgian iron shall enter France. Immediately, I raise my price five francs, and these are the consequences. For every hundred weight of iron that I shall deliver to the public, I shall receive 15 francs instead of 10. I shall grow rich more rapidly, extend my traffic, and employ more workmen. My workmen and I shall spend much more freely to the great advantage of our tradesmen for miles around. These latter, having more custom will furnish more employment to trade, and activity on both sides will increase in the country. This fortunate piece of money, which you will drop into my strongbox, will, like a stone thrown into a lake, give birth to an infinite number of concentric circles. And charmed with this discourse, delighted to learn that it is so easy to promote by legislating the prosperity of a people, the lawmakers voted the restriction. And if that doesn't sound like sophistry, 
And as his satire makes clear his position, (laughs) I don't know what does. Because as we were saying, the effect of this protection, obviously the effect of this is that Americans now pay more for their goods. This is the effect of a tariff. There's an idea that China are the ones that are paying increased prices because we are putting tariffs on our imports from China. But Chinese people are not buying the goods that they're exporting to America. Americans are buying the goods that we are importing from China, which is to say that the tariffs increase prices on us. They increase the prices on us. And if tariffs are increasing the prices on us, and a portion goes through taxes, who exactly is losing on this deal? Because it seems to me that the beneficiaries of it are the very few businesses and industries being supported by these tariffs. And they benefit to the degree that the tariff benefits them, right? To the degree that the tariff prevents competition from foreigners, from foreign businesses in foreign countries. But their benefit come at a cost to the people in the United States who consume those goods. And sure, there's a secondary cost, perhaps, on the jobs, which is to say that if Americans can't compete with foreign companies who are selling similar products, then perhaps they will go out of business and jobs will be lost there. Those jobs can be regained in other places where America is more competitive. What you're talking about there, Dan, is it's about a division of labor that can be achieved through international trade. And it's one of the reasons that that trade is beneficial is that it allows people to focus on what they are able to do best. You know, going back to our original state of nature where I fish and you collect berries, it's far more practical for me to just fish and to get really good at it and for you to just pick berries and for us to then trade parts of each for for parts of, of the other rather than us trying to do everything. And by us trading, we're better off. Now, here's something that a lot of people don't realize is let's say that I'm really good at fishing, but I'm also pretty good at picking berries. And I could actually pick more berries than Dan can. I'm actually faster at picking berries than Dan. Then some people would argue that there's no reason I should trade with Dan because I'm just better all around than he is. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Probably true. But but there's actually an interesting, interesting principle there, and it's that if I'm better at fishing than I am at picking berries, it's actually often beneficial for me to still trade with Dan so that I can focus on what I do best, not just what I do well, and will actually increase my total overall wealth. And it's, it's a sound economic principle and is the reason why it's beneficial for high-skilled countries in general to still trade with low-skilled countries so that they can then focus on high-skilled jobs and therefore make more. You know, China is able to mass-produce a large number of things, and we could produce those things here for more money and would limit how much we were able to do. And instead of our workers working on other higher level things, they would instead have to work on producing those things. 
the idea that all jobs are created equal is not accurate. There are different jobs that produce different levels of wealth. There are other things that we can be doing. And the pressure of international trade pushes economies towards the things that they do best. Exactly. And that's which, what we need to be doing. Which is ideal. It actually makes things wealthier. You actually want... There's all always talk about the certain industries in the United States and how well they're doing and how we need to bolster industries that are weak. No, we don't actually. In fact, industries in an ideal world where people were you know, obviously in a kind of utopian world where everyone's doing the thing that they're, they're best at. Many countries would focus on very few industries. And obviously that's not going to happen. And there's reasons you, you wouldn't want that to happen. But that pressure is useful in that it increases the overall wealth of the world and that you want people spending more time doing the things they're most productive at. And as Brad was saying, that doesn't, I mean, in America, you could do pretty much everything more productive than many countries, but that doesn't mean you're not going to trade with them because you should focus on the thing that you're most productive at and let people who, for which the difference is not so great in your productivity levels, the spheres where you are closer together to have other people produce those goods. So going back to, to Bastier's example of, you know, 15 francs versus 10 francs or $15 versus $10. I mean, I'll use, I'll use an example here in the United States. You know, if, if I can get a, uh, if I can get a pair of headphones, you know, the, the same quality headphones, if I can get them for $10 in China, or we can place a tariff so that I have to get them for $15 in the United States. What does that do to the economy? So let's look at the two scenarios, right? And let's play them through. So in the first scenario, let's say the first scenario is there's, there's currently a tariff, right? So I spend $15 and I purchase it in the United States. And that $15 goes to that headphone company and they can spend it on their employees. They also have profit, which they can spend and that benefits the United States, right? Or let's say there, the tariff is removed. I then take $10 and I send it to the Chinese company who then sends me the headphones. I then have five additional dollars that I've now saved. I take those $5 and I go to the grocery store and I buy an additional $5 worth of food. I buy a bunch of oranges. Now what happens is I have more than I had before. Instead of just having headphones, I now have headphones and $5 worth of oranges, which depending on the season could be quite a few oranges. <laughs> which is to say you're wealthier, right? Which is to say that I'm better off. Now the obvious argument is, okay, but now we've lost an American job, headphone job that's now in China. But that's not 100% correct. So what's going to happen? That headphone company is not going to get as much business. They're going to have less business. And so employees are going to get fired from that company and they're going to work somewhere else. That is what's going to happen. But it does not mean that there are going to be less jobs available in the United States. Even if the unlikely thing happens and the money doesn't come back to the United States, which is unlikely. Most likely that money is going to circle back to the United States and be used by a country to purchase an American product. And of course, I mean a company purchasing an American company's product, not a national purchase. But the point remaining the same, that the, eventually the money does come back. But even in the short term, what's going to happen is there's going to be a transition of labor. And a lot of people are very afraid of that. But really, these transitions of labor 
are actually very good. We do not have a huge number of agricultural jobs like we did 200 years ago because the economy has shifted. We don't have the same number of agricultural jobs that we had even 40 years ago. The people who were working on a farm 100 years ago are working somewhere else now, and their quality of living has improved. And yes, during that transition process, they may have lost their job and then had to find their job somewhere else. But it doesn't mean they're not better off. And that's something that you've seen throughout the United States history. As we've moved from one industry to another, it doesn't mean that we're worse off. It almost, it often means that we're better off. And that's something that you have here with this headphone story, is that what's happening is that I'm spending my money for the companies who are working the most efficiently to benefit me. And because of that, people are going to work for companies that are most efficient in benefiting me. Maybe that headphone company will change their practices, and next thing you know, they're actually selling headphones for $9, and are then able to compete and hire more employees because they've exploded because they're cheaper. That's just one possible scenario. I don't know all the possible ways that the economy moves, and the reality is, is that no one does, because it's just too large. Yeah, you've it's predicated got this, on individuals making choices that you were not going to be able to predict, yeah. You've got this manufactory of laws. You've got this government who thinks they can see it all. And really what they see is just the one job, right? They see the headphone guy who's making those headphones for $15 an hour, and they say, we have to protect him. He cannot lose that job no matter what. When reality is that if that headphone company is not working, then something needs to change. If someone else can produce it cheaper, whether it's within the United States or without the United States, then they should be the one producing the headphones. Let the economy shift to best serve the interests of the consumer so that we can have more wealth both individually and as a people. And that's what fair trade that's what these protectionist tariffs, that's what these taxes on other countries and restrictions and regulations can stop from happening. That's the danger. And when you, when you think of it that way, it's, it becomes kind of a, a self-evident because what people are suggesting by protecting jobs in this manner and in many of the other ways that, that we've discussed is that the purpose of the economy is jobs, not wealth, which is to say we're better off having jobs than we are having wealth which doesn't make any sense at all right because the por the purpose of having a job is to be able to obtain wealth right it's to get stuff if you preserve jobs at the cost of less stuff all you're doing is you're saying this person is more important to me than the other people right you're favoring this person and their current status, and, and, and they may not even be better off when you protect this job, as Brad was saying, it'd be better off in the long run for them to shift to something else. But you're favoring that person at the expense of everybody else. And often these exchanges are creating other jobs. Being able to buy headphones for $10 will mean that a company that uses headphones all the time can hire more people, right? And being able to buy raw goods like iron, and other, you know, uh, 
really basic goods that are then used to create more complicated things, being able to do that cheaper means those companies can expand and provide more jobs. It's this weird game where you're saying what is right now is good and must be protected even against better possibilities in the future, and it must be protected even if it means we're going to be poorer as a result. Obviously, that's not what people intend. But the political incentives are such that the way we measure wealth, one of the primary ways we measure wealth and that gets people to vote for you is by creating jobs. And so when jobs are disappearing, people get upset at the politician. And, it, and it's part of this turn away from what economics should be doing to what we're focusing on now is part of a, a serious political problem where we're putting the cart before the horse, right? We're putting yep. jobs before stuff, before the before the things jobs create. Yeah, and, and here's here's an example to illustrate that. You know, when we talk about international trade, the biggest fear is that I'm going to spend those $10 on headphones for a Chinese company, losing the American job because the Chinese company is going to produce them. And then China is going to hold on to those $10 and not give them back, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take that to an extreme. Let's say they keep doing that. What's the net result of that? That we're going to be trading our fiat currency for real goods in exchange for nothing. Like that's 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 the argument that's being made is that they're going to hold on to all of our fake dollars and all we're going to end up with is all of this stuff, but no jobs. And what that would mean in the long run is literally that China would be producing stuff for the United States for free. <laughs> and we wouldn't... Because we, we don't have any currency like, to Theoretically, you take it to the extreme, and now everyone in the United States is unemployed, but has all the stuff they want because China's making it for us. And that's, that's what we have to prevent. That's, <laughs> that's the danger, is everyone could be unemployed, but have plenty of stuff. <laughs> And obviously that's not going to happen because obviously China is going to spend that money somewhere and it's going to come back to us in, in one way or another because anything else in the long run is insane. There may yeah. be short-term surpluses or it may be harder to see because it goes through many different countries. But in the long run, what we're afraid of is not going to happen and the money is going to come back and more importantly – Wealth is going to be traded. Every time an exchange is made, it's made because it makes both parties better off. And that's true of international trade as well as true of, of, of trade within the country. Now, there are things that do happen that are unusual. China can subsidize their businesses so that they can make things cheaper than would be normally possible because the government is helping pay for part of it. And they can do that, and that can make it so that their products could compete when normally they couldn't. It's what and we do with agriculture. It's what we do with agriculture, exactly. We, we do it as well. And, and, and a lot of people say, well, that's cheating. And I say, yeah, that is cheating, but... <laughs> I mean, but it's cheating in the sense. Cheating? Yeah, exactly. I mean, who's, who's getting cheated here? It's the the Chinese people should be upset about that because their money is being used in ways they may not be happy with. But in terms of of me as a consumer getting that product and not paying those taxes, it doesn't actually hurt me. And 
Yeah, if you look at it this way, if China's subsidizing businesses that are exporting goods to the United States, so they're paying, say, 20% of the cost of, of Chinese steel so that the people who make it can then sell it cheaper, there's another way to view this. As someone who is benefiting from cheap steel in the United States and how it is used in products all the time and how it goes into, you know, a million things are made with steel and all of them are going to be cheaper if steel can be bought cheaper. It sounds to me like the Chinese government is paying a portion of my living costs. <laughs> right? We're, 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 and I'm supposed to be upset about this. Yeah, it would, <laughs> it would be as if, as if the Chinese government was, was mailing everyone in right. the United States a check for $20 every month. Right. It's you, a, you may you may look at that check and say, "Why are you doing this?" But <laughs> and you the Chinese people should. And the Chinese people should, but you wouldn't say, "Oh, China is is definitely defeating the United States in the trade war now, and right. we got to do something to stop this." What is Washington D.C. doing to stop these letters? You know, because this is these <laughs> checks, these checks are 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 destroying America. <laughs> <laughs> now, it will have a negative impact on the competitors, right? The competitors may not be able to compete with that. But as we said, that's a, that's a separate problem in that if the competitors can't compete with, with cheaper steel because Chinese government is subsidizing it, then... Then they're better off moving to a, a different industry that they're more profitable in. Right. And that will be better in the long run and even in the short run for, in terms of then the alternative of putting on a tariff. And people worry that then will will China once they've gotten rid of the steel industry competitors they're then going to implement predatory pricing. They will then have a monopoly in terms of international trade. They'll be the only ones with the steel industry left, and then they will increase the prices. Um, there are a number of reasons why that's not true and why that predatory pricing is actually a myth, unless governments are deliberately preventing competition from happening. But suffice to say for now that. As soon as that would happen, you'd get more steel industries. Yes, the argument the argument is made that industries are so complicated and businesses are so difficult to open that once they close, they cannot open back up. And new and new companies cannot start back up. Right. And therefore the gone is gone if, forever. You, if you force a company out, as soon as you raise prices then then they can't come back. Here, here's an example. Walmart comes in with very low prices. And in many areas Every day where, low where prices Walmarts even. exist, the other stores closed. That happened. That happened years ago. I mean, I remember all these little mom and pop grocery stores that closed down in the past 20 years because of Walmart. And you can probably think of a, of a store that you knew that closed down at some point in, in a town because of Walmart. After that happened, did we see the promised spike in Walmart prices? Absolutely not. Because if they had jumped those prices up, then those stores would have come back. And yes, sometimes Walmart increases their prices. But to this day, Walmart has kept their prices low because they understand that if they raise their prices those other stores will come back. And in areas where they do, they have. And, and stores will do anything they can to come back because people want to make a profit. And that's how the economy works. <laughs> Predatory yeah. pricing is a myth. 
People said it would happen with Walmart, and it has not happened. Right. Predatory pricing being the, I used it to describe part of the process, being where you you reduce your prices to the point where you're losing money in order to beat out competition. And then you, once the competition is gone, you raise your prices to monopoly level pricing to, to, because you're the only provider. And that process doesn't happen except in very, very limited circumstances that require the government to prevent new competitors from entering. Because as soon as you raise your prices very high, you get competitors. And that's, a, that's the problem. So you have to have some way to not just say, here's how we can get rid of our competitors, but here's how we can get rid of our competitors and no competitors will be allowed to enter. Yeah, and stop them from coming back. And stop them from coming back or from new players entering the game. And you can only do that through the force of law. Which, which brings us to another point. This, this idea that in order for us to be competitive with foreign industries, what we need to do is we need to tax those foreign industries as we import their goods. There's only one way that we have that could make our trade more competitive. I've got an alternative. Lower taxes on businesses. Eliminate a lot of the regulation that increases the cost of practicing of, of business practices. You can push the other direction, right? Yeah. You can, mm -hmm. you can, we could do a lot to make our companies more competitive without simply increasing the cost for consumers. In fact, we could do it in a way that reduced the cost for consumers, in which case then it would be a win-win, right? It wouldn't be the benefit wouldn't come at the cost of the American people, right? You would be benefiting <laughs> the American steel industry at the cost of every other American who doesn't happen to be currently working at the American steel industry. Sounds like a fantastic idea, Dan. Can't <laughs> doesn't believe it, no, no one else has thought of it. No, and, and there's a reason that it doesn't happen. When you think about it that way, like, you've, you've got to be asking yourself, so why is this the, the way we do it? We want, we want our industries to be competitive. I agree. And by competitive, I mean I want them to offer the cheapest goods. I want them to offer cheaper goods than the goods that are out there so that we become more wealthy as a people, so that poverty is reduced, so that we have more technology and we can focus more on, on other things, right? So that the, the, a lot of the daily worries become less and less pressing and we can have luxury things, you know, do the things you, you want to do, but, but can't right now. All of this is a product of increasing wealth, right? And you can do that by reducing regulation and you can do that by reducing taxes on businesses. And you can do that by, by reducing taxes on imports and getting rid of the tariffs and these other things. And so, so why don't we ask the question? So why don't we? Why don't people just lower all the taxes, Brad? The answer is, is, is very simple. The answer is concentrated benefit and diffused cost. And that's what happens when you regulate. And when you do things like lower taxes, what you have is diffused benefit and concentrated cost. Let me explain what I mean. So let's talk about the steel industry. If you place a tariff that protects the steel industry from international competition, thus allowing the steel industry to charge more and to thrive in general. And in addition, you place different regulations that limit companies in their ability to enter the steel industry, thus giving the currently, thus giving the currently existing steel companies a form of pseudo-monopoly because they are, their competition is being limited by force. Let's say you do all of those things. 
what's going to happen is that costs are going to generally rise for consumers everywhere because steel is used in so many different industries, right? So costs are going to go up for the average consumer. Now, those costs are not going to go up a lot because it's going to be diffused over so many different things. If you increase the cost of steel, the cost of a computer is not going to double. The cost of a car is not going to double. It's just going to go up a little bit, just a little bit barely noticeable, especially if you're not paying too much attention. And the pricing structure is so complicated anyways, it's hard to see it, right? <laughs> right. Prices are always rising Price, because of yeah, inflation Prices anyways, are always so rising. There's always deals, and then they go up and go down in different companies. And so it's hard. It's not like there's a set price for computers or a set price for cars where we could see, oh, here's the increase, right? Right. So it's So not only are the prices, are the costs diffused, but they're also hard Hidden. to see. Yeah. Now, in exchange for that, in exchange for that hidden and diffused cost, what you get is a large number of very powerful companies and a large number of union workers who work for these steel companies who are benefiting significantly and clearly, like they know they're benefiting from those regulations. So those companies and those unions and those workers are going to support you. And by you, I mean the government, the, the politicians who are giving them those benefits. And that's all she wrote. Because now <laughs> you have a politician who is hurting a lot of people in a way that they cannot see and barely notice and therefore are not going to vote against him. In exchange... He is helping a large, not a lot, a small number of people who do know that he's helping them and are going to support him. And that's, that's how the political system is born as it is today. That's why when we have bills, they're thousands of pages long and support all these particular industries, because that's how you win the political game. And that's how it's been done for years and years. And that's why we continue to see so many of these special interests being given the benefits. Because until, until I stand up and say, hey, the steel industry and these special interest legislation that has been put in place to benefit them is hurting me enough that I'm not going to vote for you, then the politician is not going to take any interest. In, in what I have to say or how I feel about the steel industry. And that's something that we see across the board in this political system. Right, right. So you get a, you get a tons of small interests that benefit immensely. As Brad was saying, they have the concentrated benefits, right? They're getting millions and billions of dollars. And then you have the rest of us who pay that bill, but we pay it so indirectly. And once the cost is distributed among every American, it's not that bad. You know, it's a couple dollars here and there. It's another gym membership or it's another, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's less than a gym membership or your phone bill, you know, to any given one of Until these special interests. Until you add them all up. Until you add them all up, exactly. When you realize how much of your tax dollars literally might as well be collected and handed over to a business person or to a union, it's insane. It truly, truly, it is the lion's share <laughs> in a lot of ways of the budget, uh, depending on how you you know, how you categorize it, we'd sort through that another time, but it's, it's something crazy. to remember. And that's an excellent point, Dan, is that 
we're not talking about our tax money that's being spent on these companies. We're talking about the fact that these regulations, these restrictions, even though it's not a tax, has the exact same result in terms of how much it costs for us to buy goods. Yeah. If I'm paying $15 for headphones instead of $10 because of regulation, that's the same thing as a $5 tax in terms of my budget. Yeah. The government is taking $5 from me by force and giving it to the protected headphone company. Yeah. It, it's just a hidden tax. It, that's the irony that you could do this. Governments can do this more directly and they do it all the time in, in socialist countries. What they do is they have national industries, right? And they say, this is a national industry. So what we're going to do is we're going to tax you and then we're going to hand the money to this business. People don't like that in a lot of countries and especially <laughs> in this one, right? They don't like that. So what you do instead is you say, China is taking our jobs. So what we need to do is we need to prevent their international competition from destroying American jobs. You then implement a tariff that raises the cost of a good for the consumers to the level that American businesses would like to pay, directly increasing their profits through government mechanisms. And you get exactly the same effect in terms of benefits to the business. As Brad said, it's, it is a tax and a subsidy, just much more cleverly hidden. Going back to what we said before, you know, we talked about all these things, trade deficits, jobs, protectionism, fair play. And we talked about how we're trying to find the deeper arguments. We look at all of these issues and we're, and we're trying to dive deeper to find the, the argument because so often all we hear is obfuscations. <laughs> Uh, talking points. That's what it is. We, all, all we hear is, is these talking points, and we're trying to figure out what the underlying arguments are. And one of the reasons those underlying arguments are so hard to find is because the true underlying arguments don't benefit most people. That if, if they just came out and said, hey, we're doing this to protect this industry at the cost of you, the consumer, and we're doing this to protect our special interests at the cost of you, the consumer, no one would support them. But instead, when they use these talking points and say, we're trying to, you know, win the trade war, we're, we just want fair play. I give you a good story with an enemy and with, uh, yeah, with we, broken we need, rules we and need cheating. jobs, then everyone gets on board. But we need to remember that the crux of the argument and the reason, I mean, the reason the economy is always rated so highly when people talk about what they want from the government is because the purpose of the economy is to create wealth for everyone. That's what people want. You know, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or something else, people want wealth and people want to be better off. And that needs to be the purpose. And the economy is doing that. And the economy and the free market continue to do that. And the government is not trying to do that. The government is trying to promote their own self-interest. You know, we talk about incentives and we have to remember the incentives of people. And we think the government has our back because we're the voters. But in reality, the principle of diffused costs and concentrated benefits create situations where they will leave us in the dirt 
in order to help out their special <laughs> interests until we hold their feet to the fire. And we have to understand that it's more than just the talking points. It is the underlying principles. And the underlying principles are that regulation, taxation, and restriction are not the way to wealth. They never have been and they never will be. And fair trade and protectionism are just another disguise for taxation, restriction, and reallocation from one to another and is and is not going to be for the common good. Right. There, there are other arguments for restrictions, right? Things like safety and security and these kind of things. Um, those are things that we're not addressing here right now. I think there are reasons to reject those, but I, but that's not what we're discussing. We're just specifically talking about creating wealth. You do not do that through these kind of restrictions. You do not do that through protectionism. You do not do that by, by choosing some jobs to support that comes inevitably at the cost of others or by choosing some industries to support that inevitably come at the cost of others. It's just, it's, it is favoritism. It's crony capitalism, and it should be condemned by everybody. There shouldn't be a single person of any party who thinks that's okay. Absolutely. Politicians should not be able to run successful campaign after successful campaign using these these platforms. Right. Using money from these groups yeah. and telling these stories. We have to stop buying into the buying into the lie, as it were. Yeah, you'll know it's stopped when you can look at the newest budget bill and it's not many thousands of pages that no one has read. <laughs> Right. When, when laws not. are passed and you can actually read the read the law <laughs> in a read day. Them. Yes, because they're actually dealing with everybody at once instead of picking favorites and, and making such, you know, minute determinations. I'll never forget the day I was at the, I was at the Utah State Capitol when I lived in Utah. And they uh, and I was in a committee meeting listening to them to discuss uh, this company was there and they were presenting their case that they had sufficient numbers and the size of their operation was significant enough that they should be able to renew their tax reductions and exceptions that they had negotiated with the state. And their case was basically, you know, nothing's changed except we've expanded. We now have more jobs at stake. And so we should continue to get these benefits. And the fact that this company is mentioned by name in the Utah state laws is insane. Tells you everything you need to know. Walmart is mentioned by name in the national laws. As, as well as many others. I was about to say, when I talked about Walmart, there's another thing that needs to be addressed that we're not addressing here, and that is that, that they are getting subsidies from the government. That's a whole separate discussion <laughs> right. that right, we obviously right. don't support. Right. This the Tariffs is one way in which businesses come and they negotiate with the government to get benefits in the name of the jobs they provide. Some people will be like, oh, that's because of the the corrupt unions or the corrupt business owners. It's the two together in this case. The, the interests align. You don't have to be liberal or Republican to, to feel like you're, <laughs> you're getting screwed over here. It's both. Don't worry, we all are. And it's not government or business. It's the mixture, right? It's, it's both pieces here. And the fact that that's there, right, that they've come and they've negotiated their piece, the only justice I'm aware of says that it applies equally to everybody which means that a specific business listed in the laws is 
is wrong by default. And of course, when you get into it, you'll find more reasons to hate it. But, <laughs> but, but you don't have to get into it. You can see that, that specific favors to these groups, whether it be in the forms of tariffs or other things, is wrong. It's unjust, and it should be, should be eliminated. Absolutely. The taxes, whatever they're paying for taxes, everyone should pay. There should be no exceptions, no deals, no negotiations. Absolutely. Thank you guys for listening. We hope we've helped clear up this issue at least a little bit or at least help you to rethink it. And please join us next week as we continue our search for just a little bit more truth. Thank you for listening. 